大家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello and welcome. When Tibet and the Tibetan regions of China are in the news, the focus is usually on political issues, human rights, and Beijing's controversial measures to ensure stability and stifle protest and dissent. But for many years, the government has also spent a lot of money on economic development in the Tibetan areas, which are among the poorest regions of the People's Republic. My name is Ruth Kirchner, and in this podcast, I want to find out if China's economic policies in the Tibetan areas are bearing fruit. What is the government doing to develop those regions, and what is changing on the ground? Do the locals actually accept the government's approach, and do they benefit from it? Finding answers is not easy. Independent reporting from the Tibetan Autonomous Region is extremely difficult. Foreign journalists need special permits to enter the area, and these permits are rarely issued. All trips are very closely monitored by the authorities. The Tibetan areas of Yunnan Province, Qinghai, or Sichuan are a little more accessible. Someone who has spent several months in Western Sichuan is Carsten Holz. He is an economist teaching at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and his research focuses on economic development and growth in China. Welcome, Carsten. Where did you go in Western Sichuan, and what kind of communities did you study? First of all, thank you very much for having me here. The community that I was studying is in West Sichuan, the Gansu Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture. Probably most people don't know where that is.、So、if you just Think of Shanghai, and you fly west for two hours. You land in Chengdu. You take a car, drive for 150 kilometers across the basin, the Sichuan Basin, and then all of a sudden you look at these mountains right in front of you. It's another 300 kilometers in until you reach 4,000 meters height, and then you look out, and there's you have hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of mountains and plains, nothing else. Plains intersected by very deep rivers, the major rivers of China, and then otherwise just mountains in the far distance. And so, if you keep driving, there are these counties, 18 counties within this region, and each county has about 50,000 people. Each county is the size of 10 times Berlin, so it's quite a decent size. The whole region is half the size of Germany and has one million people. Very sparsely populated, and most people there live on, on agriculture. But if you look around, it's one percent of the land that is actually being cultivated. Only it's only one percent. 50% is husbandry, and the rest is mountains. So they live off agriculture, they live off husbandry, keeping the yaks up there. What are the levels of income? I mean, are people poor, or how do they compare to other people who live in remote areas of China? I think they're richer than people in other remote regions of China for a couple of reasons. One is a good share of the population works for the government. And、they're not necessarily the, the Tibetans who are originally from there, but they're Han Chinese who have been transplanted to the region. Twenty-five percent of the gross domestic product of the region is created in government organs, in government institutions, whether that's schools, government administration, police, hospitals. The whole Chinese government apparatus is sitting there, and it needs people. Tibetans are typically not qualified enough, so Han Chinese come in, and they get Han Chinese salaries plus a bonus for going there. But the majority of the population is Tibetan. Yes, and so if you look at Tibetans, very few make it into the government. Very few make it into running hotels or transport、uh, enterprise. Most of them stay agriculture peasants. And if I look at the peasants, they don't have a salary. The average income is about a thousand euros per year. They do not have much cash income. It's a subsistence agriculture. They live off the barley that they grow, Tibetan barley, chinko. They have potatoes. Occasionally, they have corn. 
And then they have their yaks. That's all they have. They have very little cash income. There's nothing that they can sell. So apart from the official number, 1,000 euros, supposedly that they somehow make on average per capita in the countryside, there's another big source of income. It's 10 times bigger. They're making on the order of 10,000 euros per year for collecting mushrooms. It's, it's unbelievable and you don't hear about it. It's not in official statistics. It's not in official publications. But you go there and every spring, April, May, there's this army of Tibetans heading out into the mountains on motorcycles. They drive just wildly up there and they look for caterpillar mushrooms. That's the first thing. Caterpillar mushrooms are about eight centimeters long. It's originally a caterpillar. A fungus comes in, grows within the caterpillar, kills the caterpillar, and takes on the shape of the caterpillar. So you have an eight centimeter long caterpillar looking like mushroom. Each of them is worth 10 euros. Why are these mushrooms so valuable? I mean, where are they being sold and then who wants them? Well, this is China. So officially, if you talk to people, they say for medical reasons, but they supposedly are an aphrodisiac. So the customer base is mainland Chinese, Han Chinese people. They're being sold, exported. So the people are actually then not that poor because they have all this grey income, so to speak, from uh, collecting mushrooms. But as I said in my introduction, the government is spending quite a lot of money on developing this area. So what are the sort of type of government projects that uh, you saw during your stay um, in Ganze? So there is a very parallel economy, and that's the Chinese one. And it's not really an economy. It's, it's like a gift that comes from the central government. The local government spends 10 times more money than it collects in tax income. So all this money comes from the province and from the center, and it's being spent on infrastructure. So what we see there is new roads, really well-built countryside roads, not freeways, but good roads, an electricity grid that reaches just about every house now, the roads go to the last village, the last house. You can drive to the most remote village and houses. Unbelievable. Water supply, schooling, excellent schooling up there now. Kids, mandatory schooling through grade nine, free schooling through grade 12. They're encouraged to stay in school. Hospitals are there. So the, the whole Chinese apparatus is there and it's operating. It's in full operation. The, the dependents don't take part in that. They go to school, yes. They use the roads, yes. But they're not deriving income from it. It's an enabling mechanism. The Chinese system of economic development, it enables. It's there to enable others to make use of it. The Tibetans aren't always qualified to make full use of it. They're coming out of an agricultural society. They're coming out of a yak herding society. They ate yak meat. They drank yak butter tea. They dressed in uh, yak woolen clothing. Their tents were made out of yak skins. That's it, that's what they had. And now they're here facing a completely developed economy, including internet access that's as good as in Berlin, cell phone access everywhere, way up in the mountains, cell phone access. And uh, that's a completely new world for them. So very few Tibetans make the transition into using that world. So you're saying a few Tibetans are actually using that world, but um, let's stay a bit with these projects and the infrastructure that uh, the Chinese government is building. I think one of the key questions will be if these projects are actually creating jobs for local people. They are creating jobs, mostly temporary. They're creating jobs in terms of constructing that road, but once the road is constructed, the jobs are gone. And who is getting the road building jobs? Who is getting the apartment hotel building jobs? The Tibetans are not necessarily qualified. So a lot of the labor is being imported temporarily. Han Chinese companies from the coastal regions come in with the workers, build the road and leave. Come in with the workers, build that uh, school and leave. 
So the jobs are temporary and uh, the labor is mostly imported. The local dependents complain. They can apply for jobs working on these construction sites and they complain that they get one third of the salary of the Han Chinese. So the Tibetan guy gets 100 renminbi, that's about 13 euros, and the Han Chinese guy gets 300 per day. Per day. And now you, you have to ask, is that a discrimination or what is going on? And it could be discrimination, but most likely they are not as qualified. They just don't have that experience in building houses. And so the, a good argument could be made that uh, these wages are market-based wages that reflect the capabilities of the workers. But it depends on upset because all they see is, I can only get 100 where the other guy gets 300. You were saying earlier that uh, these uh, people come in, the Han Chinese come in, they build, uh, they build the roads, they build these projects. Uh, are there any signs then of a sort of sustainable economy created through the government investment? So the government is the enabling part and then the government also has a facilitating function in that the government tries to attract outside investors and that can take various forms. One is a solar panel farm. The central government was looking for a place for it. The local government said, hey, we have space here. Why don't you come? They came, they acquisitioned the land from the local farmers. The farmers at the time were quite happy to give the land away and they were well paid. They thought they were well paid. Now they look back and say, we should have gotten more. That's one of the ways that economic development comes in. The solar panel farm runs on its own. It needs a few guards and, and that's it. In one county seat, the local government managed to attract an outside real estate developer from another part of China. That real estate developer came in, took a whole city block and built on the order of 15 buildings. That is 300 shop fronts, which have been sold. 200 of them have been sold, 100 is still empty. That is apartments upstairs that they're trying to sell and five hotels they're planning on within that compound. I'm not sure yet if that's going to take off, but that's a way for the local government to help the economy by attracting this outside investment. The shops will probably be locally run. The hotels will use some local staff and whatever else comes with it, the apartments and then there's cleaning services. One little item that I noticed repeatedly, there are hotels and hotels obviously need their linens washed. So there are special linen washing shops now in these localities. That is a linkage effect. We call it a linkage effect. One economic activity starts and because it has started, another one comes in, into life because they see a, a chance to make profit. They see that they can provide something and earn a living. And in that respect, the local Tibetans do get involved, but very gradually. This is Merrick's Experts. With me is Carsten Holz, Professor of Economics at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. We're discussing economic development in the Tibetan areas of China. Carsten has spent several months doing research in Western Sichuan. Now, what are the primary goals of developing these regions? Are these policies by the Chinese government aimed specifically at the Tibetans and is there any focus on let's say particular needs or traditions of these communities? That is hard to tell because I'm not sitting in the state council so what I see on the ground is they're developing all of West Sichuan perhaps to an extent that goes further than I see in other parts of China so there is a chance that the ethnic minority areas get a much higher degree of financial inflows that is possible. If I look at the much bigger picture West Sichuan is the beginning of the Yellow River uh, up towards Qinghai province, the Yellow River, then the Yangtze, 
that goes all the way to Shanghai, then the Mekong, which goes through Southeast Asia. And if you go further west into Tibet, proper central Tibet, that's the Salween that goes through Southeast Asia, then the Brahmaputra that goes into India and the Ganges that goes into India. Half of the world population derives water from these rivers. If you just take this bigger picture, China has this very overall interest in the area of Tibet, the bigger area of Tibet, including West Sichuan, because with that they're controlling the water supply, potential water supply for half the world population. And on top of that, they can build power plants all along these rivers, and they are. And beyond that, they're diverting water from these water sources all the way to Beijing. Some of it is planned and it's not yet complete, but water is the major resource there. And the moment they develop the area, they take control of it. This Tibet, this larger Tibet, is of such strategic importance, maybe not just militarily, but with respect to the water, that it makes sense for them to just be present, to put infrastructure in place, they can access the area, they own the area, they are there with Han Chinese controlling the area. Whether the Tibetans matter so much in the end, that's another question. It seems to me the Tibetans are often bypassed. The Han Chinese development model is put on top of that region, the locals are not being considered. The locals are organized for the monasteries. It's a very different organization. And they're mostly being left alone. The monasteries are being left alone. You can do whatever you want. We are now putting the Chinese system in place, and it is in place. But you said that uh, people do, in some way or the other, benefit from some of the development and some of the money that is coming in. You mentioned schools, you mentioned uh, businesses that spring up because of the development in the region. What does that do to people? I mean, do they feel that they are benefiting? Um, are they grateful? Or um, is there resentment? Or um, are they neutral when it comes to sort of assessing uh, what the Beijing government is doing? My feeling is there's a lot of mixed feelings for these people. On the one hand, they use what's being offered to them. They take it in happily, sending their kids to school, they see positively. They use the roads, they buy their SUVs and drive them on these Chinese roads. They go to the hospital. They do get a subsidy for agricultural production. They're happy to collect it. Nomads get their houses built by the local government, either for free or mostly for free. They take it. They take what they can get. And at the same time, their loyalty is not with the Chinese. In the end, the loyalty is with the monasteries, is with the monks. And so the Chinese are not buying their hearts. They're buying them to some extent into the Chinese society. They're taking part to some extent in the Chinese society, but their hearts are still with the Tibetans, with the monasteries. So it's, it's quite a split. And so I don't find a united front against the Chinese or a united front for the Chinese. No, they're just living next to the Chinese. And there are a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs in these regions, carpenters in one locality. A hundred carpenter families came from one particular other location, settled down, and the Tibetans and the Chinese interact perfectly normally. It's quite peaceful living with each other. But presumably there is uh, some sort of resentment because, I mean, the, the, the Tibetans do experience uh, restrictions uh, that are imposed on them and not on the Han Chinese. Did you come across yeah. any of those? Yeah, th so that was a very big element. Almost every conversation, the Tibetans complained they can't go to central Tibet. They can't go to, to the Tibetan autonomous region. So here come the Han Chinese, the tourists, and the big, sometimes BMWs or big SUVs. They stay in the best hotels, they eat well, they're well-dressed, uh, uh, they're quite arrogant. And then the next day they drive on to Lhasa, 1,500 kilometers away, and I, the local Tibetan, am not allowed to go to Lhasa. 
So there's a lot of resentment there. Another item is passports. They can't get passports. Why can't they go to, to Lhasa and why can't they get passports? They don't know either. Just as a Tibetan ethnicity, they cannot get that. And so uh, in a way, they, these are the Tibetans and they're not treated as Chinese citizens. But if they're not treated as Chinese citizens, can we say they are Chinese citizens? They're not treated as Chinese citizens. If they're not Chinese citizens, then their land is not part of China. And do they have any opportunity to vent their anger or to voice their grievances? I talked to a monk, I talked to many people, but one particular monk that I talked to said every year they bring this up in the political meeting with the local government that they want the freedom to tr travel to Lhasa. And every year they listen, the Han Chinese listen and nod and nothing comes out of it. So they feel they are stuck? They feel they are stuck. And then on the other hand, the monks sometimes look like they are being bought off. The Han Chinese government offers 50 monks a trip to some temple that they want to go to. It's all paid for. So the monks are being favored in some ways. One particular group of monks made it to Hong Kong even on government invitation. So the elite sometimes could be bought off by the Han Chinese. It's a very complex game that's being played there. Now, what's your long-term view then? Um, will this region, A, have a sustainable development um, or will it continue to rely on the, the handouts, let's say, from, from central government and will it uh, be politically stable in the long term? Those are hard questions. Sustainable economy, that's the first one. I looked at different counties. One, I would call a trading county. I think that county is stable because it's a central trading city, repair works and trading. They're going to grow just step by step, gradually. I'm not too worried about that one. Another one is focused on tourism. And there I wonder, the height, the altitude is just overwhelming. It's three to 4,000 meters. If we fly in, we're going to be gasping for air. The first night we won't sleep. Some people have heart problems. So developing tourism at that height is really difficult. The best hotel there at night uh, pumps oxygen into the rooms. but. That not every hotel does it. So in terms of tourism, they I don't think they can do mass tourism to the extent that they want. So I'm not too optimistic for that place. Other places rely on hydropower. That is a, a stable source of income. But agriculture will always be the mainstay, I think, for the local population. And it's subsistence agriculture. They feed themselves and then they try to make money with whatever else they can. That's not going to improve terribly. But I also don't think it goes down. So sustainable on a low level. What about, what about political, stability? political stability? The political stability, they have no chance. They may be angry, they may vent their anger at times, but they have no chance of, of any changes. The, the military is overwhelming. They are all over town. There are several locations where they, where they have their compounds. And within minutes, they can be in the city center. So when I was there uh, one morning, somebody self-immolated, burned themselves to death. And the military just swarmed into town. There's a closed up roads. So all of a sudden you have hundreds of military. So there's no way of any kind of upheaval of uh, changing the regime. It has to be peaceful and the monasteries are promoting peaceful behavior. They're all about compassion. Then it would have to be a political solution from the top. And I don't know if China has any incentives to engage. Now, you've spent um, many months in that region. Finally, then, on a personal level, what did you take away as a sort of lasting impression or lasting impressions? I just admire the life force of the Tibetans. They're just 
so bound to the ground or based on the ground that is so earthbound and so friendly. If I encounter a Tibetan on the street, he may have wildest hair, be dressed in, in crazy cloaks and he looked wild and like looked sternly at me and and then I would look at him and after a while we would both start laughing and it would be all really friendly. So there's a, a heartfulness there that I don't see anywhere else. So lasting impressions from Western Sichuan, from Ganze Prefecture in Western Sichuan, and a quite complicated and complex picture, economic development on the Tibetan plateau, uh, some benefits, but also drawbacks, problems, and continuing resentment among the local population. Carsten, many thanks for sharing your insights and experiences and uh, giving us a glimpse into a part of Chinese society we seldom hear from. That was Carsten Holz, Professor of Economics at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Technology. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.